If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hey guys, this is Dr. Shiloh. Welcome to episode three of LA Not So Confidential. I'm here with Dr. Scott. Hey guys. And we are going to focus on the Netflix show Mindhunters today. So hopefully everyone's caught up on it. Um, If not, do that before you listen to the rest because we're going to just talk about the season um, and our impressions and how it relates to the work that we've done. Um, but first, I hope you can realize that we have new equipment. Yeah, we actually <laughs> we invested in some real equipment, so we, we're hoping it works. We did. We have heard you loud and clear, and now hopefully you can hear us loud and clear. Oh, so. you know, speaking, if anybody decided to download this and you gave up on episode two, mm-hmm. please go back and give it a try. I was able to rejigger some stuff and we re- up, re-uploaded it. Excellent. So, yes, um, we did. It should be fine-tuned a bit a little so bit. it's tolerable. Yeah, this is um, better, I think. Yeah, this is going to be better. So um, how was your week? Uh, it was really good. It was a little... <laughs> it was a little interesting. Something happened as a result of this. Our, our new hobby... Uh, a friend of mine, a colleague that I used to work with at the county jail, has a side business where she um, has this, this business where people can log in to a website and find out uh, through audio files about their medications that they're taking. So she hired me to do voiceovers. No. Which, I know. I, like, I'm really surprised because I, I think I sound like a – I hate my voice. I think I sound like a, a – gay penguin from Alabama, but maybe, <laughs> maybe I was going to say everyone hates their voice, but I don't think they think that. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it worked for me somehow, so I must be doing something right. But it, it's weird because I had like seven different medications and I had to sit in front of oh this gosh. microphone and sit in front of the computer and say things like, deniazine may cause rectal bleeding. Lovely. Call your... <laughs> How many takes? I know, I know. Like, I was laughing at the whole thing. Call your doctor immediately if you have purple pustules. Oh, dear. It was just awful. Um, Mm. But it was kind of fun, and I got, you know, got a little extra scratch. So I'm not going to complain. Psychologists always have like. 25 jobs. I know. What is up with that? Her with that business, her hiring you to do voiceover. I know. <laughs> and probably because we all have student loans that we'll be paying till we're, we're oh, 85 years old. There's that too. When I did my background investigation for this latest job, my background investigator, she goes, you have a lot of jobs. I'm like, yeah, we pretty much all do. Sorry. Okay, well, the look you just shot me imitating her face was like... Oh, she, she was dead serious. She like, was looking at you like you were... wrong with me. Yeah, like you were really sketchy. <laughs> yes. Like they don't put us through enough hell. I mean, when I went right. through for my... When I was briefly a law enforcement psychologist, mm-hmm. I almost quit the process because the background check was was so lengthy... Because the agency I went for was different for, from the agency you worked right. for. And I was given the background check that the officers go through. And yeah, I'm, the full you know, I've got a two and a half extra decades on top of people True. going in. Yeah, and that's what I was expecting. I mean, I've been through numerous of those types of background checks, but so it And we'll it never be able to, to kill me, anybody. Like, we, because our fingerprints are in every database. Yep. So, yeah, we can't. Yeah. Like I'm not going to get away with anybody. What's the, what's the secret? If you're going to kill somebody, it has to be unconnected. That's right. Can't be connected. That's right. So Mindhunter mm-hmm. is based on a book that John Douglas put out in 
early 2000s. Um, it kind of starts off as more biographical and covers his 25-year career with the FBI and especially in developing criminal profiling and this journey he took interviewing serial killers in prisons to gather research and didn't really know what they were going to do with it in the beginning. Um, but eventually with some of his partners and um, some other individuals associated with academia turned mm -hmm. it into another book. John Douglas's book is called Mindhunter Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit. And then they ended up publishing the information from essentially the 10-year project mm -hmm. of interviewing these um, criminals in prison. That's called the Crime Classification Manual. Um, and that came out actually earlier than John Douglas's book in the, the 90s. But okay. it was won all kinds of accolades for being um, a big contributor to sort of law enforcement intelligence. And so that book, if anyone wants to look it up, and I'll throw it up on the web page as well, is written by John Douglas, Ann Burgess, Alan Burgess, and then Robert Ressler. I'm sorry, yeah, Robert Ressler, who um, essentially is the other agent that did a lot of the interviewing with John Douglas. So, so I'm jumping a, just a little bit ahead, yeah. but I wanted to ask you, is the... Is the female psychologist character, is that, was that a real person or is that an amalgam of people? No, it, it's essentially um, Ann Burgess. So once okay. they, um, I believe she's a psychiatric nurse with a doctorate. Um, so it's not exactly the same as how it's portrayed in the show because oh, she's okay. a psychologist. Yeah, in right? the show they portray her as a psychologist. Right, right. Um, so, it, I mean, there's definitely parallels and I think that's who it's supposed to be. Um but the so the Mindhunter season one has been out on Netflix for a couple of weeks now, and um, I just you know I, I dove into the book in college because it kind of helped me figure out what I wanted to do oh, wow. when I was studying criminal justice and psychology, and I I've read it multiple times as well as all of John Douglas's other books <laughs> that he ended up putting out, looking um, at some more modern cases too. But it just it really stuck out to me as something that I found super interesting and was kind of one of those milestones of my true crime fascination. Oh, cool. So it was really, I mean, I, when I saw the trailer for this, I was super stoked that yeah. it was coming out, especially all these years later and kind of, uh, reflecting on how my career has been, you know, since I first picked up that book. So that was just pretty neat. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm pretty impressed. I mean, I'm impressed. What are your hmm. overall thoughts about well, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I straddle two worlds because it takes me back to having worked in post-production and worked as a casting director. And my partner is a production designer for feature films. So I, I can't help, I can't divorce myself from it, mm -hmm. but I was really happy to see that everything is pretty top notch. I mean, they capture the era absolutely perfectly uh, down to the selection of music. In fact, they must've spent a lot of money getting the rights to the music because they picked some fantastic songs and the sets, the costumes, everything is done to a T the lighting is done to a T. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know anything about that stuff, but it just feels so authentic and yeah. has that kind of tinge to it. Yeah. Um, which is neat because it's a, dark show. <laughs> yeah. And so even like fits, I, one right? of the things I noticed is that even when they're shooting, cause a lot of it is shot in the, you know, they had this horrible office in the basement right. of the FBI right. Quantico. And then they're in, you know, at that time was way before any of the new prisons were built mm -hmm. in California. So those prison, they were in the old school, yep. dank, moldy, mildewy prisons. And right. it looks like it. Yeah. But when they, even when they go outside into the sunlight, there's this sort of, you know, tobacco stained golden light that <laughs> seems to emanate from everywhere. It's, it really right. evokes a, a time period. It does. It, it's, it's neat. I, Plus I, the I, fact that you know, one of the lead characters is smoking all the constantly. time. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. Even just um, like when they, cause they travel to a bunch of different cities and when they get to a new city, it kind of has the, uh, you know, the font really big yeah. um, to kind of tell you where they're at. And then there's a, a scene where the main character Holden meets his girlfriend in a club and it's loud and there's music playing 
and you can't hear what they're saying, but there's subtitles. Yeah, you know, just, that was clever. Those are kind that of was really clever. Little twists. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. Did you pick up on like when they first showed it that they're basically starting off every episode with BTK Killer? No. So he's the guy with the mustache and the glasses, oh. and so he's a thread throughout the whole thing. How did you know that was him? Because it looks just like him, and it's always it in does Kansas. Look like him. <laughs> oh, it was Kansas. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh wow. So it's well, you know, you know why? Because BTK coming up, I mean, we see him as a you know over middle aged man, very heavy set, whereas this guy is younger and right. But yeah, it's kind of at the start of his um, killing. Oh, wow. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, That's really cool. On. Um, yeah, I think even when John Douglas was originally doing these interviews, um, he talks to some serial killers about BTK and calls him BTK, but they haven't caught him yet. And he says, you know, there's this person in Wichita, Kansas that oh, is wow. killing women and calls himself BTK and refers to him it's, it's just it's kind of neat to see it all now yeah. we now that he's been caught and you know we've heard well from it's also him great storytelling that's a great is. narrative just to weaving. have that that weaving that through and having that continuous thread because right. now i mean i watched the whole thing i marathoned it and i had forgotten that part because yeah. i it I mean, starts I, off with him almost every episode yeah. and then the very very end is a closing scene with him and you usually see him very calm and methodical and there's mm-hmm. one that mm-hmm. one scene where he just kind of has a, yeah. a meltdown and loses it um, yeah on his own you know in a, in a secluded area it's very interesting yeah i think that actually refers back to um he was waiting in a house for a victim to come home and oh. she didn't ever come home and he got pissed oh um, wow and left okay so um they figured that out later actually they didn't show it in Mindhunter, but I think in the in real life, he actually left her a note, like, why didn't you come home or something like that? And then they ended up oh, tying it together that it was him. Yeah. So what do you want to do today as far as what we're covering? Because that show, I mean, I hope, do you feel like it's going to go for multi-seasons? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine it not getting picked up. It's so good. So how much um, from your reading the book, because I didn't read the book. Right. So how... Does it cover a quarter? Does it cover you know a half or a third or what would you say? Um, I would say it covers a third. Okay. Yeah. So they've done. They did. Did it a couple characters? of smaller crimes, right? A couple, you know, what like three other characters besides. I shouldn't murders. say smaller crimes. They were right, brutal right, murders, right. but they were one-off where they were using their profiling skills. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's not much. So they have a lot that they can work with. Plus, okay. I mean, he wrote other multiple books all the way up until, oh, okay. you know, cases like John Benny Ramsey. And oh, well, I can't like wait that, to do that. So. Well, so basically this, this season t- tends to focus on Ed Kemper mm-hmm. and, uh, Jerry Brudos. Right. Yeah. Right. So, uh, for those of you, if by some chance you're watching the show or you haven't watched the show or you're not, haven't scheduled it yet, but you don't know who Ed Kemper is. Um, just to give you a little bit of, you know, sort of a, a couple of bullet points. Um, uh, Ed Kemper is uh, he's 68 years old now. He's a guy that was born in Burbank, California in 1948. Um, he became known as the co-ed butcher, the co-ed killer. And um, he's an American serial killer. He abducted and murdered uh, several women in the early 1970s. And as a teenager, he had murdered his uh, paternal grandparents as well as his mother and a neighbor, uh, one of his mother's friends. Well, that was, those were his last two, those, his mom and the friend. Okay, after all the, two. after all the girls. But the grandparents were the first. Um, and he engaged in, uh, you know, some pathological behavior such as necrophilia. And, um, at one point he claimed to have even consumed, some of the flesh of his victims, so cannibalism. Although he recanted that later on. And he's, you know, as, as forward as he is about a lot of his things, you know, to me, there's, there's sown a few seeds of doubt because he, mm-hmm. this is a person who really identified with law enforcement. Right. And he would, is, was very invested in engaging them in, you know, friendships. Yeah. You know, yeah he he wanted, actually tested to be a CHP officer. Yeah. I his think his mother he, had his record expunged. 
because she said, oh, you know, that pesky thing where you killed your grandparents, that might hold you back. Let's try and get this expunged. It's, it, that is mind-blowing. I mean, I can, I can understand, and even having worked in the jail system doing evals and seeing, you know, as people are coming in and seeing a juvenile who has, you know, breaking and entering, but they've got no other charges and no other... Right. Yeah, you expunge something like that, but expunging a double murder... Which is its own interesting thing because she was so awful to him. Yeah, she was a horrible person, obviously. Um, I mean, this is definitely somebody that was probably started out with some bad wiring and the parental situation made it a lot worse. Yeah. Made it a lot worse. But um, he uh, went back and forth as a child between his parents. Um, Like Shiloh was saying, his mother was incredibly abusive. And later, sort of post-mortem... forensically diagnosed with borderline personality disorder mm-hmm. as well as, you know, being a, a pretty severe alcoholic. So mm-hmm. it was not a good environment growing up for him, but he also met some of the same characteristics that Dahmer did as far as uh, injuring animals, right. um, experimenting with body parts, you know, dismembering animal corpses right. Um, right. and had some really, you know, uh, violent tendencies as a child, some that he acted on and some that he fantasized about. And I think, you know, it, it's another one of those things like, how did this slip through? You know, how did he? Well, and his comment after he killed his grandmother was, I wondered what it was like, what yeah. it would be like to shoot grandma. Yeah. And then he knew he'd be caught by grandpa. So he had to go too. Yeah. Which was very just sort of practical mm-hmm. on his, yeah. his end. What was fascinating to me about him um, before we get into the story of how he interacts and this is something, you know, our, our field has come a long, long way in the past two, two and a half decades. But, um, you know, once again, there's a wide range of people that are competent at their jobs. And when this guy, when Ed Kemper at, okay, he's born in 48. So he murders his grandparents. He goes to court psychiatrist at the time when he was a teenager, diagnosed him as, um, schizophrenia, paranoid type, um, which, you know, you and I looking at that, even on a surf, superficial level, would go. Right. Because no. the hallmarks of that are going to be auditory visual hallucinations. Or right. Some sort Isolated of behavior. And, right. You know, sort of negative symptomology as well. And which was great that that was picked up as soon as he was incarcerated or he was put into the hospital. The social workers, the psychiatric staff there was like, no, this mm-hmm. guy's not schizophrenic by any means at all. He's a psychopath. Right. But he's not that. Right. Well, especially in so young, yeah, you know, it's pretty rare to be diagnosed with that at a mid, you know, teen age. Yeah. So. Especially, and he was also incredibly high functioning, had mm-hmm. later tested with an IQ of 145 mm-hmm. um, and was known to be like a great student. He was just always in this really vicious, vicious, uh, abusive cycle with his mom. Right. And he was the victim of that abuse, even though he was six foot five, 300 pounds. I mm-hmm. think even as a teenager, he was six foot, six foot five and probably 220 pounds. And his mother was just a, a shrew. Well, and then he gets put away and then let out in his early twenties and sort of missed that whole period of coming into sexuality and being able to be out with peers and age mates and experience that in a normal fashion. So yeah. that sort of perfect storm came together you know, after he gets out of the psychiatric institution and is back home living with mom. And now she's working at a university and constantly telling him, you're never going to be never, with a girl. Like yeah. You'll never poets. accomplish anything. You'll never meet anybody. You're right. telling how awful he looked. And, yeah. Yeah. um, and once again, folks, we're not, we're not coddling this guy, you know, no. um, but it's the idea that, you know, you can really mess somebody up by the sure. way you treat them. Sure. Um, well, so he's the main character he, for he really these is. episodes. So how many? In what episodes is he? Um, mostly in? two through five, I okay. would say. Um, he's the the first serial killer they go to speak with, just by happenstance, because they're going to be in a nearby city. So they, they hit the jackpot, right? I mean, they hit the jackpot with him because he's somebody that was invested in sharing his story. Yeah, yeah, he was more than willing to sit down and, and talk with them. Um, I, I was really happy to see this because from the book, he was just this literal larger than life character. Um, and so to kind of see him walk on screen was (laughs) 
really cool to see him come alive in this show um, and just made such an impression on me. I think out of every serial killer they talked to in that book, I always remembered Ed Kemper. Maybe it was because it was the first one. I don't know. Um, but it was really neat to see it come to life on the show. And the actor is just so fantastic. Yeah, he's amazing. I mean... You know, I, I, because I of my former life, I, I'm usually sitting watching television with my laptop open on IMDb, looking at who the actors are. Like, okay, who mm-hmm. is this guy? Because he's he really been? amazing and what's right. he done before? And so then that leads into a rabbit hole of finding interviews with him. And he said that this this role was so challenging, but he said that he feels like it took him to another level of acting that he immersed himself. And it was really, you know, that kind of frightens me. I hope you're a method actor, but, right. um, but the idea that he, you know, came through on the other side and knowing what challenge this was and is a better actor because of it. And he does a great job because you are drawn in, in the same way that Holden is drawn in. Right. 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 Absolutely. You know, he, he's this six foot seven guy, but you look at him, he looks like this little kid with these big glasses on and, and he speaks like a child. I mean, he has a very deep voice, but Mm -hmm. he talks in a, a manner that's very stilted. It kind of sounds like somebody who didn't really emotionally develop. Exactly. Nice job. Okay. Thanks. (laughs) And scene. (laughs) But have Um, you, have you been, so a lot of what goes on in those episodes is we, as the audience have the advantage We're we're seeing more than the characters are seeing. And I have to give it to the way this storyline, this narrative is developed is that not everything is given away and the characters are not like these super beings that, Right. get everything from the beginning. We're really seeing them screw up. Yeah, they're stumbling along mistakes. the way. I mean, it, it feels reminiscent in a lot of ways. Well, of, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's like, do, us coming you know, into this. Um, we worked it, together and getting snowed. Both of us got snowed. Yeah, you know, the, the first time that sort of happens is a big reality check. Um, for me, coming from a law enforcement background, it was a huge shift to sit down with an offender and talk with them in a completely different way than I had before. So before, you know, being primarily a patrol officer, you're it like, was, in, are you interrogating? Well, I mean, preliminarily. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I'm, I arrest them, bring them in, see what I can get out of them, but we're talking a short period of time. I mean, I got to get back out there and do my job. Right. So I'm trying to in, interview slash interrogate them and get what I can out of them. And then detectives will follow up later. But if I can initially get it great, but it's, not a long period of time. I don't want them lying to me. I want to catch them in lies, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas shifting to being a clinician right, and having a different goal, they've, they've already been punished for their crime. So my goal is to assess and treat so that they don't commit any future crimes. Right. Um, it, it just, it was a big shift for me. And I think, um, you know, we've just had great, supervisors and well helping us along it, we, that goes without saying our supervisor for that was phenomenal and I you know my experience was coming really from a different end of the spectrum than you because I came from you know from before doctoral work working as a marriage and family therapist and really being trained intensely in developing therapeutic alliance, not for the purposes of interrogation, but for the purposes of, you know, of, of development and and crisis negotiate or crisis resolution and working with individual clients and couples and families where the, where the goal is to really be present and be in the moment and, and meet them where they are. And I think, so that's great that I got that, but I did not have the skill set that you had on the other side, as far as like my radar really being attuned to the access to mm-hmm. pathology, the criminality, you know, and, and I remember our supervisor who's probably still the best supervisor I've ever had Agreed. because she taught us, right. You know, we, we were in a learning, um, environment, environment right. but we were also supervised which is unfortunately that's not consistent throughout the the world i mean you know people are usually just thrown in to situations and kind of just managed to, yeah and we were in a particularly i mean it was important that we were managed 
and right. supervised and given leading. And, you know, I remember working with somebody that um, had already done his time, um, but he was going to be on lifetime supervision. I'll call him um, Gavin. I'll just make up a name. And, you know, I worked with this guy twice a week for six months and, you know, I liked him. I mm-hmm. knew everything about his life. I mm-hmm. saw him in group. I saw him in individual. And, you know, our supervisor was really, you know, in our supervision meeting to be able to say, Scott, you know, you really like Gavin, don't you? And for her, it's like, it's not a bad thing. It's just remember right. where that boundary is because you need to go back to looking at what got him in this place. Right. And then I had to, you know, go back and look at the criminal file in the background and go, oh, yeah, this guy had you know, over 50,000 images of child pornography and women being tortured. And even though he never had a hands-on offense, Mm -hmm. this is indicative of that there's some real pathology there. And that he's also likely very invested in presenting well. You know, where I was on guard and later when I worked in state prison, you know, I got snowed a couple of times and I learned real quick, like, (laughs) okay, no. I think I remember you coming into the intern office one day and just like, this guy's been lying to me and I just figured it out. Like after all these months and you were so defeated. Yeah. What an idiot Uh, I was. But when, when someone's likable, it's just sort of human nature to then believe what they have to say. Or maybe that's, maybe that's, you know, endemic to Western culture. True. You know, like that's not so big in Asian cultures or, or even like, I mean, that's a big thing. Like what was something I was reading recently is that when you go to Russia they tell you not to smile too much because no one wants to have anything to do with you. If you're like, they <laughs> consider you so it creepy happy? that the Americans smile so much. Yeah. I think in the show, there's this point where Holden, the main character, you know, kind of hears through the grapevine that Kemper may have said something bad about them. And he says, did Kemper call us idiots? That doesn't really sound like Ed to me. Like, how <laughs> like dare he's, him? He's, I know he's him. My, he's my friend. He's how, my why friend. would he say that? You wouldn't say that. And so, I mean, it's, it's that sort of thing, but sex offenders in general. And then of course we can extrapolate that of course to uh, serial killers, but they're manipulative individuals. I mean, that's the whole part of picking victims and grooming victims and being able to shape an environment where you can have somebody to victimize. Um, So why wouldn't they be that way with, their therapist and yeah. their probation officer and anyone else are coming into contact right. with well, that, them in trouble. You know, faking it worked for them for many years before they got caught. I mean, it's, there are some people that, and it, there are some that I found interesting to work with that from my MFT experience, I would immediately assume, Oh, they're being so open with me. Mm-hmm. And that's another manipulation though. It's this sort of, you know, giving you, it's not necessarily just telling you what you want to hear because they, they can weave in bits of the truth, which is very like, that is very convincing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to create this thing, it's, you know, becoming a chameleon to what they expect your expectations of them to be. Sure. And you just thank God, if you use that superpower or that super villain power to, for good, you could kind of be amazing. Right. Unfortunately, it's not used in that way. Very true. I like that Mindhunter does a really good job at showing how it really is this perfect kind of dance of, okay, you need to be genuine, be yourself, build rapport with this individual to elicit information, to get them to trust you enough to elicit information. But you still have to be vigilant enough to know when they're pulling one over on you and or not being genuine. Right. And one of the things they do really well in the show is, you know, in, in reality, who knows if there was really this sort of big difference between Holden and his partner. Right. But the way they've written it is they are two very different voices where his partner is saying as a, as a seasoned cop as a seasoned FBI agent, mm-hmm. you're going too far, right? You're going too far. Why did you do? I mean, he, he really is the voice of reason. Whereas Holden really represents who he's more impulsive. He's, sure. he is shooting from the hip mm-hmm. and he's 
lucky slash unlucky enough that that's worked for him so well for so long that he's right. been like this sort of golden boy. Right. right. And, but unfortunately, you know, that doesn't work all the time and it doesn't shooting from the hip, which then, uh, the psychologist character later mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. is able to show, no, we have to quantify everything we're right. doing right. and you can't just go off script because then you're throwing off all the data that we're gathering. But then that goes back to, they weren't getting anything out of people when they started out with that script. It was too cold. Right. It wasn't, it, it was a snooze fest. <laughs> That's true. And, and the, yeah. like we said that he was a, tre- Kemper was a treasure trove of information because of it was his so pathology. Easy. It, it was, was he was very open right. despite being very manipulative. Right. But also he had, they had the advantage that Kemper really identified with law enforcement. This was a guy that wanted to be a cop and he right. was really bummed out that he couldn't be a cop. And in a way it was probably like flipping a bird to his dead mom that he was able okay, you know what, maybe I killed a bunch of people, but here I am, I'm around all the cops and law enforcement sure. that I Told you I was well. And what be with. what career exhibits power and control more than that? Exactly. I mean, obviously, a need that he was trying to meet. At least to, through the application process, I think ultimately kept him from being a CHP was he was too tall. It was. It was he's six foot seven, and he couldn't fit on the motorcycle. Which Could you imagine? But I find this fascinating. So in 1972, his juvenile records were permanently expunged, and the last report. From his probation psychiatrist, um, this is a quote. If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or to any member of society. And since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. I, I have so many feelings about that because I think what would, what if I were in that person's place and with those people that we feel positive about that have been working with us for three or four years. And I, I think it starts off well with, if I didn't know about the history, this is what I'm seeing in front of me. That's how I'm kind of reading through the lines, it, even though it's scary because it, it, this person makes a recommendation for it to be expunged so he can kind of live his future adult life clean. Um, but really, we can assess what's in front of us and the past. But no matter how many assessments we do or tools we have we can't predict the future either i mean people think that we are these you know miracle workers where we can really predict future behavior and we're not there so this makes me think i've been glad you framed it that way Mm -hmm. because i want to think i want to um i want to present it in terms of the zeitgeist at that time um the idea that our forensics had not come to the extent that they are right now. I mean, right. we are really well developed and who knows where we'll go in the next decade. Right. They were not developed at that time. Um, you know, basic things that are just clear to you and me. Wait, this guy killed animals as a kid. He played violent games with his sister. He played, he nearly killed his sisters mm-hmm. on multiple occasions. He mm-hmm. had a violent horrific anger toward his mother. Um, and you and I looking at that on a rubric that we would use for gauging reoffense right. would go, no, this, this guy is not ready to be released that I'm pretty clear on that. So maybe it is about just the time that we're working in with the tools that we have right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So speaking of tools you have, okay. So after you and I finished our internship, mm-hmm. I went to a state prison, you stayed and worked for the forensic um, clinic right. that working with um, sex offenders, right? Working with sex offenders and, and um, released from prison. You got really, really expert with those assessment tools. So, tell can you tell me about that? Because that's off well, my skill set now. Yeah, I. So, kind of tying back into you know with Kemper and what this mental health professional recommended based on their clinical judgment at the time. So. 
with risk assessments, that's what we're doing. We're assessing risk. There's no predicting about what somebody's going to do in the future. Um, the best we have is just assessing risk. And the way that I sort of tend to explain that to people is that it's very similar to how your car insurance company will assess your risk for getting into an accident. So if you meet certain criteria or have certain items that they can check off that put you at higher risk, if you are a male in your early 20s, if you drive a sports car, if that sports car is red, guess what? You're paying a higher premium because you check off those three boxes. You could have the most responsible 20-year-old with a red Corvette that is never going to get in an accident, but because their numbers say that guy is more likely than the next person. And that's built on statistics, it's right? It's totally built on statistics. Um, yeah, unfortunately, that person pays a higher premium. And so with offenders, and I'll just say, you know, usually the things we're assessing for risk are violence and or sexual offending. With offenders, if we can tick off certain items, that's how we end up calculating if they are low, medium, or high risk for reoffense. Okay. So we're saying this person has these certain risk factors going on. This is what we're going to target in treatment to hopefully lower that risk. Um, but it doesn't matter why they have these risk factors. They just have them. And so statistically, they're more likely to offend. So maybe we need to give that person more treatment. They need to be monitored more closely. So you're talking about things that the ones that I do remember vaguely from when I was doing that internship and at state prison were uh, issues around like relate, like a history of unstable relationships. Yeah. So that's, if you that's a real important one or history if you weren't of able to substances. be in a relationship for two years, then sorry, you got dinged. Yeah. Um, age. So, you know, we know with all criminal behavior that criminals basically age out of engaging in that type of behavior. And so the younger you are, the um, that works against you. Much like the driver, much like the age. Uh, yeah, oh, right? exactly, exactly. So they're probably looking at what they consider to be impulse, or they're not looking at what they consider. They're looking at statistically what yeah. comes along with being a young male, which is impulsivity. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And just that inability to kind of build stability in whatever it is relationships or good driving records yeah so yeah i just i wanted to kind of give a little piece about risk assessment for our audience maybe uh, we should do a half episode maybe one yeah. of these times about more about this because awesome. some of that stuff's very interesting especially when we're looking at violent offenders versus um sex offenders mm-hmm. i mean not that, that, mean, that there is violence there no matter what but there is there are different branches sure. about who will act who will not act and in what way they'll act out right yeah okay right. so upcoming episode yay okay so when we look at the other serial killer that is featured pretty heavily in the first season i'm just gonna i'm putting it out there that they're gonna have multiple seasons and get picked up so i'm just gonna call this the first season right not the standalone season and this character is introduced in episode seven which is my favorite episode okay the season well we got to talk about why after i introduce him okay so jerry brudos um uh, born in 1939, he's another American serial killer and necrophiliac. Um, get both of them in the first season. And he killed at least, to their knowledge, uh, or at least to our knowledge today, he had killed at least four women in Oregon between 1968 and 1969. So I'm, I'm actually convinced he killed more people because he was not upfront and open. And this is an incredibly narrow window of time for... Right. I, so I think he probably there's a lot of other things that happened that he just never gave up. Right. Um, he's from South Dakota. He's, um, the youngest in the family. Um, and you know, I, I you know, folks, it's going to sound like we're always going to be plant pending things on, um, the mother, which is not <laughs> fair. And we're going to talk about that, um, being, um, an issue in the history of psychology is maligning mothers. In fact, there, there even used to be a term called the schizophrenogenic mother, who was sort of this, God, I you know, heard that time. I know because it's so archaic, wow. but it basically was, well, it's not this poor guy's fault. It's his crazy mother who did all this to him, which is, you know, we've found that to be all bullshit. Moms be good to your son, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but not too good, yeah, not too good. <laughs> bad breast, good breast. Um, 
a little attachment I was joke there. Say, I say. <laughs> maybe you need to object relations that. joke. Okay, but but creepily enough, in in the case of Jerry Brudos, um, his mother did want a girl, and so there was definitely you know some mixed messages that were sent to him regarding gender and sexuality, and he was abused brutally and. Um, just at age five, you know, this is something happened with him that I think we saw a lot when we were working with sex offenders Mm -hmm. is that due to his characterological wiring, there was just a kink that occurred. And the kink was he developed a fetish for women's shoes. And around that age, he, I think he was going through a dump. If it was like a garbage or something, he found a pair of women's um, heels, heels. which his mom did not wear. Yeah. His mother did not wear them. And he became, I mean, he was immediately, it was like his sexualization of that image just, you know, sort of exploded, fully formed. Well, and, and maybe just the curiosity because it was so different. I mean, if we're talking age five, you know, yeah. less sexual, but just what is this? Yeah. And well, then, it became weird well, and sexual pretty quickly. Right. But, um, you know, uh, knowing to hide it. Right. He um, knew to hide it. He's tried to steal one of his, uh, his teachers. teachers, a pair of her shoes. But um, she didn't react adversely. Mom did. Eventually told him to get him. rid of them. Um, he hid the shoes and then mom found them again and burned them yeah. in front of him. The teacher actually just asked him why he did it. And so he was getting these mixed messages yeah. from women. So you got someone who is this harsh and negating female influence versus mm-hmm. this sort of understanding. understanding and compassionate and curious, non-judgmental, like non-judgmental. Yeah. That's, that's kind of brutal for a little kid to, sure. to try and understand and conceptualize the difference between those two approaches. Right. They just don't have the ability to. Right. Right. Um, so he, but he also started exhibiting some other behaviors. He was stealing shoes and stealing underwear mm-hmm. for neighbor, from neighborhood girls. Mm-hmm. Um, he spent his teen years in and out of psychiatric hospitals started stalking women as a teenager. Um, and now by now the shoe thing was fully formed where he was either knocking women down or knocking them out and stealing their shoes and running away. So he, um, uh, abducted a young woman and beat her pretty badly when he was 17, um, was put back into the state hospital. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia again. So clearly this guy was not schizophrenic. I mean, it's they, like they, they, what's the worst diagnosis we can come up with because this person's such a monster. I yeah. Mean, I, I, I mean, but even then anything. they had the DSM. I mean, if we go back and look at the, if we go back and look at the, the criteria for that diagnosis, he's still not meeting it. I mean, it's, it's crazy behavior, but it's not that. Right. And, um, so he got married to, when he got mm-hmm. out of the hospital, he got married, got a job, mm-hmm. married a 17-year-old. Very interesting how young he married. Mm-hmm. Had two kids and, you know, asked his wife to engage in some, you know, what would be probably sexy behavior. You yeah. Know, like we Some photo, take photos of her. Clean, naked, yeah. except for the heels, you know, right. do her housework, which, you know, outside of any other pathology would not be particularly notable. But yeah. in this case, it really seems like it's starting to escalate. Sure. So um, he ended up killing several women, dismembering them, keeping one of the feet in his freezer mm-hmm. so he could try different shoes on it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty brutal. Um, and again, had incredible arguments with his mother, like just incredible arguments with his mom. And um, he ended up, you know, he ended up in prison when he was caught with this, unlike Kemper, he denied everything. Yeah. Very you know, different than Kemper. Very, very, you know, Kemper was up front. Um, Although in, in the show also portrayed as somebody fairly likable, you know, he kind of messes with them a little bit. There's, and I don't know. Okay. How much of that I didn't like him at all. Really? I did. <laughs> I didn't. I thought he would. I mean, I immediately had a, a visceral reaction that was very different from the Kemper character. Oh, so I think that's cool that we both had a different reaction. Yeah. I like that. He kind of like fucked with them a little bit and, yeah. you know, pretended like he was asleep when he started reading from this script and then was like, I'm just kidding with you guys. And, um, yeah. Okay, I'm a little worried about my podcast partner here, mm-hmm. but let's move on. He's so likable. So are you. <laughs> so <guys>. likable. <laughs> but in, there's a, there's also a really, um, a, an intense scene that 
was ta- goes back to what we were talking about of maybe crossing the line in his interview technique. But Holden, he takes a chance and he does get information right out of him and angers his colleagues in a big right. way. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's why I like this episode so much because there's so much so many lessons learned and things that we have to carefully consider when we're working with offenders. And and the two that come to mind that were pretty evident is the use of self-disclosure. And is that the scene you're talking about when Holden talks about that? Um, And then this issue of counter-transference. So (laughs) self-disclosure, just talking about in a forensic setting. So what, what how were you taught? What did you, well, I was taught to very, two very different things. I mean, even before I would, you know, focused in forensics as a, as a, like I was saying earlier, as a marriage and family therapist, you want to listen, you want to engage. Um, you don't necessarily want to be the old school psychotherapy of uh, approach of being a blank slate. Right. You want to be authentic in the room so that the person can come back. So you, you're careful about disclosure, but sometimes disclosure, especially when you're working like with a teenager, mm-hmm. you know, a teenager, mm-hmm. you're not going to get anything out of them unless you find some, some hook, Right. to connect on. Right. And then, but as a, in my psychology training and in, in my, you know, doctoral training, that was de-emphasized. Sure. That was really, really de-emphasized. And then working in a forensic setting, it was even, even more so, degree. but sure. sometimes you have to, I mean, even right. I got stuff out of my clients in prison by disclosing some things that were what I would consider to be half truths. Yeah. Yeah, you know, not enough to where they could find me on the internet, but right. And it, it, what you have to always ask yourself and consider is if me sharing this information about myself is going to be useful to the therapeutic process. Right. Is it going to help them along somehow, um, or are you doing it to pump up your own ego? Which, yeah. unfortunately, I think some more green clinicians, and I'll even admit, I probably did it. You know, I probably didn't use the best judgment when I it was raw. I would never all do the, the time yeah. of oh, I had this other court appointed therapist, and all they do is sit there and talk about themselves. Yeah, I don't the say worst. anything in the session, and I'm just like, oh my god. Um, but it, it's twofold. It, if even if you weren't working with a, a forensic population, it, the therapy session is not about you; it's about your client. So right. you know, it's keeping the focus in the right place. And then with the forensic population, it's why the heck would you give them information that they can manipulate or use against you or find you on the internet or, you know, in worst case scenarios, look you up and and come into contact with you outside of the therapeutic setting. So, um, yeah, the, the scene was really intense. Holden decides to share with, uh, Jerry Brudos, a situation in which, you know, his mom walked in on him masturbating and, so not only is it self-disclosure, but there's a sexual element to it. Right. Um, and his partner is horrified. Completely, completely horrified. horrified. I mean, I, he's an older character. I mean, just talking about masturbation is probably kind of right. weird. But the fact that he used it as a quote-unquote interview technique was um, really interesting. And you know what else? I, we didn't really talk about this in the development of this series. Because we we're talking about the two main characters. But mm-hmm. Holden's girlfriend is key to him understanding a lot of the techniques that he's developed. And, and I mean, getting to the place where he develops these techniques right. because he is so concrete FBI and she's a she sociology, she's a sociology major. Right. So she's like absolutely poking at the foundations uh-huh. of every perspective he has. Uh-huh. And it, you have to give him credit because he goes, no, this is actually good stuff. I've yeah. never thought of that before. Right. Right. You know, that he's, was he's still young enough to say, okay, I'm, I'm open to. And because it works for him, he in, in, ends up impacting the other right. guys that he's working right. with that go, Oh, this stuff is working. Yeah. It's seems like voodoo right now, but it's working. I, the, I'm glad you brought up the girlfriend. Cause it's such an interesting kind of coming back to Jerry and the shoes. And there's a scene where she has on these heels that, they saw in a store together that and some um, black lingerie and some I mean, black she's lingerie really better, yeah. and, um, and Holden is completely distracted by it and can't engage in sexual behavior with his girlfriend because he's distracted by the shoes that are reminding him of Jerry. And I remember when we were in training and we were doing some training in our internship 
just about vicarious trauma and self-care. And reading the statistics about people who work in the field with sex offenders, whether it's therapists, law enforcement, judges, attorneys, whomever, that there's a pretty good percentage of people whose sexual lives are impacted by their work. Well, I would you know? completely under- I mean, some of the stuff that you and I read in Criminal well, of Files. of course. Just How do you like, not think ugh. about that yeah. at you know, some point? You're trying to be intimate with the person you love, and you're like, ugh. You're like, oh, I just read, really I read that file today. Yeah, that's that nice. <laughs> Instead of I have a headache, it's, yeah, I like, read this terrible report today. Um, but I, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. Um, the self-disclosure thing also kind of reminded me of like the overarching theme in Silence of the Lambs too, where it's like, Hey, tell me about yourself and you know, to, to magnified, but Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so countertransference is another psychology therapeutic concept that was really highlighted in this topic or in this episode. Um, and I think it's most evident when they're talking to Jerry about how he came into some of his fetishes and they start getting into the cross dressing. And that clearly hits a nerve with Tench, the, the older um, FBI agent and Countertransference essentially is this this thing in psychology that you just have to be aware of what buttons of yours are touchy or that you have a history with or your own beliefs, morals, ideas about if, certain topics. So what in you is getting triggered Correct. by what your client is giving you because yeah. that's going to affect how you react to them, how you sit with them in the room. And if you're not, if you're not marking your own, if you're not keeping yourself in line. Right. Cause um, we're people, right? So as therapists, we have, we have all of those things. Um, it can be, um, you know, that your clients, that some attribute about them reminds you of a relative of yours. You know, it could be something like that, or it could be this visceral reaction to the concept of cross-dressing well, he clearly, and the way it's played in, in that scene, you know, here's this guy who has been for seven episodes now, he has been listening to absolutely horrific things by right. these serial killers and he's awful acts of sex and awful acts of violence. And yet this is what hits him as it hits him in his masculinity. Mm-hmm. Like the idea like this, that he's sitting across from this really large sort of blue collar looking guy with a belly Right. And he's like, wait, this guy likes to dress up right. in women's clothes. And it really it knocks him for a loop. So much you know? so that it, it affects you know the work. And yeah. so that's what we're talking about with countertransference, just triggers that resonate with you and things that kind of get under your skin. Um, but then there's such, there's such a great line when they're leaving the prison and he says to Holden, if what we're doing doesn't get under your skin, you're either more screwed up than I thought, or you're kidding yourself. And I think that's perfect. Absolutely. I think it's um, fantastic. It, it just sums everything well, up. And to tie it back to when he's having the intimate moment with his girlfriend, Holden, and she comes in and she's got on um, black heels and some black lingerie and they start getting intimate. And he, at first he's like, you can tell he's overwhelmed and mm-hmm. really into it. And then his hands go down and they touch the shoes and then he gets distracted. Right. But he has this thing where instead of him owning his own shit about it, he actually kind of lashes out at his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. He goes, this isn't you. Right. And she comes back with this great line of, I know it's not me, but sometimes that's it's the a, point. That's the whole yeah. point, which is really, I mean, we could have a whole episode on human sexuality and how there's a whole spectrum of sexuality that are sort of Protestant values here in the West really mm-hmm. um, want to tamp down. And it's the reason my private practice stays in business is because people come to therapy to work out that stuff that, right. you know, got so suppressed or repressed right. while they were growing up or didn't get expressed in a healthy way. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm really thinking we're going to need to do is um, see if we can do another episode of LA not so confidential on this. I think, I think there's a little bit more to be explored, but I don't want to give it away right now. What do you think about that? 
Definitely. I think okay. we have, we're working on some really cool surprises related to Mindhunter. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're still in the sort of logistical stages, but um, yeah, to be continued and we'll let you know about that. But I, I just think the show was great and I didn't, ex- it's great in an entertainment way. It's also great in just, it brought back a lot of memories of, my own journey of starting to work with criminals and the things that I went through and the things that we stumbled through um, and still do. I mean, cases that just blow me away and catch me off guard and and things like that. But that all comes down to just human nature and there's no cookie cutter and there's no recipe for doing this because we are all so different. Yeah. The Ed Kemper thing, um, the way it ended, I thought was particularly, I don't know if it was a literary license, you know, just think, because it's a pretty so. dramatic ending. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's something like there's some controversy in what I've read about whether that actually happened at the time that it's portrayed happening. But basically they do something really stupid, which you're not supposed to do at all, which is leaving, um, an individual who is not an employee of the prison alone, you know, with a, with an inmate, especially (laughs) someone who's so incredibly violent and incredibly. Well, he's like in the hospital. Yeah. He's in a hospital setting, but I'm not really sure if that's actually what happened, but that's the way it's portrayed. And our lead character is, comes very close to, you know, getting killed. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's uh, devastating for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has a full blown panic attack and like, um, it's it's a great way to end the series, and it's a great way to to sort of wrap up. No, I didn't, did I jinx it? I said end of series. No, they have to have no, another, no, no, no. It's end of season because what we see is him really, actually, for the first time, running full headfirst into the wall of what he's actually doing, mm-hmm. the danger of it. He's mm-hmm. been able to compartmentalize it yep. up until this time, yep. and you know the way that reflected in my experience in working in the state prison. Cause I was working on a, a really high security yard with um, what was called special needs. So it was people that had to be kept away from general population. And I had probably about four guys that were on my caseload over the years I was there that have been profiled on these television shows like nightline. I can't identify them right. for anonymity's right. sake, but what they were interesting in that, the these four I will never forget them because they had that bravado that Ed Kemper had. They walk into the room. I mean, literally my first day working with one of them, he walked in with this sort of saunter and he goes, You probably saw me on forensics files, oh didn't my you? God. And Whoa. so yeah, he's, and then he goes into the explaining that like, oh well, that's not really how it happened and I didn't He's do that at all. Celebrity. Yeah. You know, but he wanted to make sure that I knew about his, you know, that he's a big deal. Yeah. He's a big deal. <laughs> so, um, that's it folks. Thanks so much. This was a, a lot of information. We hope you were able to stick through it or take a break if it gets too heavy. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a fun episode. It was, I, I feel like it was a perfect mix of all the things we're trying to accomplish with this podcast. Yeah. A little education and, yeah. and some gore. Right. Um, so, We've got some exciting things coming up in the next couple of weeks and um, make sure to check us out on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Right. And reach out if you have any topics or things you would like us to cover. Yeah. We've got some great questions coming in that we'll address uh, in our next episode. So have a great week and we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye folks. Thanks. Bye.